Hey everyone, back again today on camera. Uh, today I'm going to be covering Immanuel Kant's 1795 essay titled Perpetual Peace. And I'm going to try to situate it along his broader philosophical continuum to provide all the necessary context that you need. Now before jumping into that, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe. You'll see my 250 years more episodes I have up. Uh, if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form anywhere where you can get podcasts if you earned that. If you found this particular episode on a podcast platform, you're going to be able to find the video for it on YouTube. I'm, I'm in a new setting, which is exciting. There have been many new people that have joined the channel uh, that you'll be able to see now my a corner of my living room if you're into that at all. If you want to help me out, do all those things I've already mentioned. Uh, like, share, subscribe. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. Links for those things in the description, but obviously no pressure. And yeah, let's talk about this very important essay that Kant gives us here. Now, I think it's important to say right off the bat that there are issues with translation with this text because there are so many different translations. So some of you may have read it already and might be more familiar with it using certain terms that I might not use. So just keep that at the back of your mind. When I was researching this, I actually engaged with three different translations and was comparing them as I went along to try to use the language that made the most sense to me. So just putting that out there as a little disclaimer. Now, this essay is Kant's attempt to put into practice the philosophical ideas that emerge within mostly his second critique the critique of practical reason, trying to put those into action to create a situation called perpetual peace. Now this term perpetual peace comes from uh, a Dutch innkeeper's sign or a, a signboard. And Kant begins the essay by asking like, who is this for? Is the term perpetual peace meant for politicians in the setting, for patrons, for people who are gonna stay at this uh, establishment and that then demands or encourages us to ask who will contribute to this project of perpetual peace is it something to be conducted by politicians by other rulers by citizens and this is a tension that kind of runs throughout the course of the essay it's not necessarily totally totally clear as to how it will come about as to who will enact it but in any case, there are some important precepts or some important qualities that will determine whether or not we've entered a situation in which we can say there is perpetual peace or really just peace because perpetual peace uh, or the peace that Kant is writing about implies it's existing in perpetuity, going on forever. Now the text itself is organized around some key uh, articles and I guess it's kind of like a list. Kant is laying out the necessary conditions for perpetual peace. Now, in order to run through this, I'm gonna go through it quite methodically and systematically. And so in doing that, I'm gonna cover section one, section two, and the two supplements. And then I'm gonna give a little bit of attention to the appendices at the end, but not really too much. So I'm just gonna focus on the core essay here. So starting out with section one, he gives us six fundamental articles in order to arrive at that are necessary conditions for the, I guess, the cultivation of perpetual peace. 
And the first one that he gives us is that no treaty of peace will be valid if either one of the parties anticipates a future conflict or is preparing for a future conflict. Because if that's the case, then it isn't peace uh, or perpetual peace. It is instead just a peace treaty. It's just a withholding of uh, possible conflict until a later date. Now, Kant's not satisfied with that. That's not uh, anything to really celebrate. That is only deterring or deferring uh, violence until a later date. So in order for any real treaty to ensue, it has to imply that it will go on forever in order for this to be uh, really perpetual peace. And that gives us here the second article, and that is that no independently existing state, no matter how large it is, uh, big or small, uh, is allowed to procure, to acquire another state through conquest, through exchange, or through purchase or marriage. To do so would be to reduce a state and all the people within it to the status of commodities, as though it can just be bought, which is to take it away from its singularity, from its specificity, to make it as though it can just be used by somebody else. Now what this does to the state, and all the people within it, is it rips it away from being an end in itself to instead becoming a means for something or somebody else. And that puts us here into article number three, which is that all standing armies will be abolished. And that is because for Kant, a standing army implies the possibility of future conflict. Even if there's a state that acquires a ton of power, a ton of wealth, and says, we want to mandate peace. So they say, let us accrue uh, amass a giant army with nuclear weapons and all other kinds of horrible things and bully the world to not act violently towards one another. All states to act peacefully towards one another. That is not the kind of peace that Kant is vying for here. That is just global command. So the existence of the army there, even though it is an army that is fostering peace, in air quotes, ostensibly fostering peace, it does so with that possibility that there might be conflict, because otherwise the army wouldn't be necessary. Now additionally, the existence of an army anticipates or necessitates people to be bought in order for them to enter the army or for them to be drafted. And what that does or what that implies is that people are being used for somebody else's, mostly rulers, elites, used for their ends and not their own ends. The people themselves existing for the, in accordance with their own will, which happens to be in accordance with, with God's will, uh, as Kant would say, and in, in maybe that's that's a very simple way to put it, but in the second critique, the critique of practical reason, which I should say, I've covered those texts on this channel if you want to go and check those out for a little bit more philosophical context here. Now, the fourth article is that no national debt shall be contracted in connection with another state's external affairs. So the issue here, and Kant is very much in tune with the fact that capital and wealth can tend to centralize itself and it can tend to be monopolized in the hands of just a few nations or a few states. And what those nations and states can do 
is then lend out their money to other states, turning them into debtors. And that can create a situation in which some states are rendered subordinate, rendered debtors to other states who are probably taking interest on top of what they've lent out and are exploiting other ones. So it wouldn't be totally outlandish for some states in a situation before peace has been attained to ally themselves and resist the crystallization of such a system, a credit system, that impoverishes some states for the benefit of others. Because those states that are being impoverished are being treated as a means to an end, not an end in themselves. Now number five, no state shall interfere with the constitution, the autonomy of any other state. Which is fairly explanatory, that would be to encroach upon their own destiny and their own uh, will, but in any case, have to say it. And then number six, finally in this section, no state shall commit such acts of terror within war or outside of wartime that would make the possibility of peace in the future impossible. So this would be like acts of uh, poisoning enemy combatants, of organizing a coup, hiring mercenaries, things that would seriously rupture any trust between any two or many states. So these acts are to be completely forbidden. Now, even though he gives us these six key articles here for the establishment of perpetual peace, he suggests that there are degrees in their severity and in their importance. So he suggests that number one, number five, and number six cannot be adjudicated. They, they cannot be negotiated with. There's, there's no wiggle room at all. So those were just to freshen your memory. No treaty of peace can be contracted or can can be worked up if one of the parties believes war to happen in the future or be planning for a war in the future. That was number one. Number five is that no state shall in fear interfere with the constitution of another state. And then number six was that you can't use reprehensible tactics within war or outside of wartime that would make the possibility of peace impossible in the future. So he suggests that these three of the six cannot be negotiated with. There's nothing about them that can be uh, redeemed at all, they must be followed. Now, by contrast, he suggests number two, number three, number four are a little bit more open to subjective leeway and to interpretation. So for example, number two, or to lay them out again, number two is that no state can be acquired or procured by another state through conquest, exchange, etc. Number three was that no standing armies can, they should be abolished. Number four, no nation can capitalize on the national debt of another nation by turning them into debtors. So for example, he elaborates on the second one, which is that you can't acquire another state through conquest or exchange. And he says that while that should be followed, it's important to recognize that at the time when he was writing this in the late 18th century, 1790s, all of the states he was talking about had been acquired through some kind of conquest or some kind of exchange. They didn't just fall down and the borders were established by some god or something. It was purely done through conquest and or exchange, like in situations where it was amicable. In any case, he's leaving room for us to acknowledge that states came out. They were born out of, in a lot of cases, warlike settings. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a few moments, but the point that I think he's making here is to acknowledge the flexibility of these articles here. Now, while they should be followed to the to T, there is that extra room of acknowledging 
their place in establishing what we know to be states now and some role they will have in the future. Now this puts us here into the second section in which he lays out some more fundamental tenets to perpetual peace. More specifically, the types of relationships that will occur there. Now these are three definite articles for peace between states and here he really clarifies that what he means by peace can only come through legislation. So any kind of peace that people might imagine, let's say from thousands of years ago, people were at peace, there were no states. He's suggesting that that is just being in a state of nature is not in itself peace because there's no guiding precepts that people can follow. There's no legislative body that can actually set down these rules and make them sacred. So the first of these three articles is that every single state must be Republican. And for a state to be Republican would mean that it acknowledges every single human to be free and an end in themselves. All of these humans within a state are going to exist in accordance with a single constitution. And thirdly, that constitution must respect the autonomy of each and every citizen. Now, the reason that Kant likes this kind of a system that respects these three things or that is able to conduct these three things is that it would leave the question of war entirely up to the citizens themselves. And he suggests that if that is truly the case where it's not rulers or multinational corporations deciding what wars are gonna be conducted and it was the people who decided, what that would produce or what would happen was that people wouldn't go to war because they would know that it's horrible in and of itself and so they won't be persuaded through other means by propaganda or anything like that. Now, you know, with all this being said, I think that we can acknowledge how utopian Kant's ideas are here. Um, who knows if, an, if a public is just gonna naturally be opposed to war. Certainly there are examples where publics are entirely committed to the project of war. But in any case, this is what he gives us, and I'm gonna problematize it a little bit more as we go on, but just putting that out there. Now with this kind of system, although there are some democratic principles to it, the idea that the people would decide, it is not a purely democratic one. And the reason for that would be that if you had a democratic system deciding what would happen, you could just have a majority deciding for everybody else. You know, 55% of people de deciding for 45%. To him, that would allow any system to be led astray from the central tenets of perpetual peace. Because if one year everybody, you know, nobody wants to follow the rules of, uh, I don't know, article number six mentioned earlier, then perpetual peace is thrown out the window to which he's saying that people should be abiding by these articles and they are without question, they cannot be questioned. And again here, obviously it's a little problematic, the assumption that people will just follow Kant's principles as though they are indelible, as though they cannot be uh, questioned or challenged or that more cannot be added. But in any case, that's what he gives us. So these Republican systems are going to be ruled by a minority of people. And what I mean by that is that it is always going to try to reduce the number of people in any kind of position of authority to the absolute minimum. The point is that the people decide for the people because the people know what's best for themselves. Now this puts us here into the second 
fundamental article of free states uh, existing with one another towards perpetual peace. And that is that there should be a federation formed around an acknowledgement of free states. Now this is to respect that every single state is its own thing with its own culture, its own history, language maybe, other uh, central key tenets. But he's advocating that this system, maybe a League of Nations or um, national law that is organized around the project of perpetual peace is going to recognize and respect these differences so long as these nations comply with the fundamental articles already laid out. So everything else, you know, religion, language, culture, trade, all of these things can still occur with, without any issue, so long as there's respect for these other fundamental principles. Now he says that this is, this is possible on a global scale because every single state does this already. Every single state has laws that uh, dissuade people from committing violence against one another. They essentially legislate peace within their own borders. So he just extends that to a global system to say that, hey, you know, we have this propensity not to inflict violence on other people according to various laws. Why can it not be applied to states? You can't encroach upon somebody's bodily autonomy. You can't steal from them. You can't harm them. So why can a state do that to somebody else or to another state? So the point then, he says, is that in previous systems without a legislative body to have established these laws, it wouldn't have been possible to have a global order of uh, states cohering around a thing called perpetual peace. Now there is some racism here, and he, he uses certainly some derogatory language to describe uh, pre-quote-unquote pre-civilized people, and of course that's very problematic and it's his Europeanness coming out. but. He also condemns colonization in every single way because that is itself the act of encroaching upon other people's autonomy. So his notion of the state is not reducible to just European states in the late 18th century. It is instead, it can be extended to all people existing in any kind of community setting because all people, really all living beings, are ends in themselves. They do not exist for something else. Now this is one of his fundamental observations or discoveries in the critique of practical reason. He suggests there in, I guess the critique of judgment as well, really all three of them, where he shows us that if any human was brought on this earth in, in any way for something else, then they wouldn't have freedom or free will. But because we all have freedom and free will, at least in one, one way, uh, what that means then is that we are all ends in ourselves. We aren't meant for anything else. Because of that, every single moral precept should be guided by an acknowledgement that myself and everybody else has their own free will and is an end in themselves. And when that is acknowledged, we can open up the door for a moral science or for understanding morality uh, in embracing these differences that we have between us while respecting what makes us all the same, us all being individuals with freedom and existing as ends in ourselves. 
Now this also happens to dovetail with this idea of the categorical imperative. To put it really simply, the categorical imperative is the idea that you act in such a way so that any one of your actions could ostensibly be construed as a universal law. So you act in such a way so that every one of your actions corresponds with a, the potential that they are or could be a universal law that everybody would follow. And it is that very propensity that we can even do that to say whether a thing, an action, uh, an act is right or wrong, that we are moral beings with a propensity for, um, I'll just to use a big term for justice, for morality, and therefore we have the ability to choose and decide what is best for ourselves. And that means that we are ends in ourselves and that should be respected. And that puts us here into the third article of all of these states in, in a situation of perpetual peace. And that is at the law of world citizenship or worldly cosmopolitanism, depending on the translation that you use, shall be limited to conditions of universal hospitality. So all this is to say that no one should be treated as an enemy. If a stranger arrives in your land, you treat them with respect and care like you would any one of your own people. He adds the caveat that uh, if they actually want to stay there, they have to go through certain legislative or bureaucratic channels to make their stay permanent. But in any case, he, he just throws that out there. Now that puts us here into the first supplement to the text, and that is on the guarantee of perpetual peace. Now the guarantee of perpetual peace is given to us by nature. He says that it's really from God, but he doesn't just say that because that would just be dogmatic nonsense. It would just be to uh, defer the problem or the difficulty of proving it to just scripture to say that because God said it, oh, then it must be true. Kant instead goes to show, and this is again from the three critiques, that nature furnishes the possibility for perpetual peace because of nature's propensity to produce order out of disorder. And this resonates with what humans are capable of doing and experiencing in accordance with nature's natural laws or with natural laws. So humans are born within a natural world and we house certain faculties for grasping and engaging with that world so that it is one kind of unitary system. We don't engage with the world and exist in total fear of things because we are able to acknowledge how things work together, like in a city. And this is a very simple example. It doesn't perhaps capture the issue quite as clearly as it could. But in a city, if you're familiar with that setting, you aren't scared of the cars flying by. If you were somebody who maybe has never seen a car before, it might be a very scary thing to be near these huge pieces of metal flying down the road very quickly. However, you can get used to it quite fast, and the same thing would apply to nature, where you can be confronted by, with magnificently scary things like the cliff of a mountain, like mountains themselves, huge trees with huge branches, branches that might fall on you. Now, while there is a risk that might always be present, your capacity to actually experience the world happens to resonate, resonate so fruitfully and so smoothly with the world that it complies with the fundamental ordering of that world. And we are 
born with that capacity to order that world that orders us. Very simple, quick way to put it, but the point that he is making here is that we have a natural proclivity towards order and towards reducing conflict because conflict goes against what it would mean to be uh, human. I mean, we don't want that. We want cooperation, we want communication because even though each one of us has radically different experiences of the world, we all have different senses that are going to interpret the world, a chaotic world. We each individually are able to make sense of it all according to its ordering principles and we are able to communicate, to form communities, to love other people who have their own radically different experience of the world of themselves and of us. So even though the cards are stacked against us as humans to actually be able to form community, to form meaning and to really find an order within the world, we can do it. And the world lends that possibility to us. So he suggests that because that is the case, we can then infer, we can then extend that potential onto how we conduct ourselves within communities, within big communities like states. Now it's also a little bit ironic here because nature is what initially drives us apart. So nature might create conditions in which some people are going to be fighting for resources while others don't need to. Someone, a group of people living in a tropical climate might have food available for them right off of a tree and people living in northern, maybe colder climates will have a more difficult time actually getting food. Maybe there's going to be conflict produced there. So over time, people fought and they separated, they were dispersed and this was nature, more or less, people were acting in accordance with the kind of nature, but then it was going to be nature that was going to provide the possibility to reunite people once they have moved almost dialectically throughout the course of time through various conflicts and have developed to the point of allowing our communicative capacity and our cooperative capacity to overrule nature so that we are not just subject to um, an immediate need and want that will produce conflict. That puts us here into the second supplement, the secret article relating to perpetual peace. And this is kind of a silly one, but all he says here is that states can engage in secrecy if that secrecy is used to uh, forward the project of per perpetual peace. And the example he gives is that a state might not want to come out and say that it wants to pursue perpetual peace and that it doesn't know how to do it. It won't want to say, hey, we need to go consult these philosophers over here to figure out how to do this because then that will remove uh, the state's vision of itself as being the ultimate uh, knower of truth and justice and, and right and wrong. So in this setting, he suggests that secrecy can be a good thing. Now, here we get into the appendices and I'm just going to give some general points about them where he says that uh, even if perpetual peace is attained through violent means, like imagine within a state there's a rebel force that has its eyes completely upon Kant's six fundamental tenets here, everything else, just totally in line with what Kant says, and they use violent means to actually attain that end. It wouldn't be totally wrong to keep using that system that they have put forward, but that doesn't mean that those rebels shouldn't be punished for what they have done, at least in accordance with a general law in that they've conducted violence. And the reason for that 
is, well, to go back to the categorical imperative, they could not possibly have believed that those actions should be treated as universal laws. Because if that was true, the act of rebellion itself could be replicated again the next year, you know, and have that system overturned. So if you're getting the sense in all this that Kant just really likes order and law, uh, you're totally right. And obviously that's problematic and I'd be curious to see what other criticisms people would have. But in any case, this is, this is what we got. And yeah, anyways, that's pretty well it. If there's anything I excluded or I should have, you know, I should have added or elaborated on, I'd love to hear about it. Leave comments and love to read them all and good ones I'll pin. Uh, and yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, uh, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.